please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Picking up at verse 25. Galatians 3. And verse 25. Paul says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew no Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It seems to me that at some level there is some appetite for preaching about our present uh, political, social, spiritual moment. Others of you are perhaps tired uh, of that theme. Perhaps others are hungry for it. Whatever the case, knowing the times, the believer at all times has to be prepared. Prepared for the tests at hand. Uh, the task of following Christ is itself, of course, a, a kind of test. We are always being tested from the Father. And, and in the midst of temptation and testing, uh, the question is, wh where does your strength come from? Where does your, your peace, your resolve, what resources can you draw upon to give you ballast in the midst of the storms of life? Uh, what rock upon which can you stand to, to find stability in the midst of a difficult marriage? or conflict with your parents or your roommates or people at work, or uh, the fears and anxieties that seem to plague each of us, or bad health, or the, the list could go on and on. Where does your buoyancy come from? One of the many applications <clears throat> of what Paul has been teaching in this letter of Galatians <clears throat> is where to find your confidence. He's been very clear about where our confidence is not to be found, He's been pressing in. We ought not to find our peace, confidence, rest in our law-keeping, in your works of righteousness, in your morality, in your religiosity, nor, as we'll see this evening, in your race, class, or gender, or any other uh, divisive thing we might add to our identity. <clears throat> but we'll see from our text this evening, really, that the three sources Paul puts forward in our text from which we should draw our confidence, rest, peace, our rightness before God. The first, of course, is from our Father, from our Heavenly Father. Secondly, from our Heavenly Family. And thirdly, from our Heavenly Forebearers. Father, family, and forebearers for you note-takers. So that we might have spiritual power in the midst of the temptations and tests of life in Christ. So we come to the end of chapter 3 in our text, and we've worked our way up to as we've been studying week by week. You know, as we said, Paul has been arguing for justification by faith alone. And he's come to this point where he's not arguing it uh, theologically or just in general, but engaging with his opponents and arguing it for, for it based upon uh, the Old Testament, based upon Abraham, the man of faith, who 
receives the promises of God by faith and is justified, counted righteous, by faith. And Paul, in anticipating his opponents, uh, anticipates their questions about the law, as we saw last week. Okay, they might say, uh, Abraham, we saw, he, he did not earn his standing with God. That was by grace. But when Moses comes and he receives the law, doesn't that change things? And Paul's emphatic and repetitive answer has been no. There's no contradiction. There's no annulment as he receives the law of what was given by grace to Abraham. That it is the same way of justification from Abraham to you. Paul then goes on to teach that the purpose of the law being given was not for us to climb it as a ladder to earn our way with right standing before God, but rather as a mirror, as a, as a pedagogue, as a guardian in verse 24. I argue it's something like a nanny who will point out your flaws and point you unto Christ. This is the role of the laws. We read it evening, Sunday evening by Sunday evening together. And this is where we're at in Paul's argument. We're getting to the end of his argumentation. And we're getting to that point where he, he begins to launch off in praise and run-on sentences of the glories and the implications, the difference that being in Christ makes. He's been saying that we're no longer imprisoned by the law in verse 23. We're no longer under a guardian, verse 24. But verse 25, we began reading, but now that faith has come, no longer under a guardian, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Before, we were under uh, imprisonment. We were in bondage to the law, Paul is saying. We were under a guardian in a sense. We were slaves to the law, but now that's all changed. No longer slaves are you, but sons. And that changes everything. Uh, it's a Copernican revolution in words. And he comes to verse 26. It's hard to point to, to, point to more important, more impactful words in all the New Testament than that this teaching that you are no longer slaves, enslaved to the law, and bondage to the law, but sons of our Heavenly Father. We might say that theologically, Paul is saying the, the moment we first believe and you were united to Christ by our faith, and not only does the immediate benefit of justification, of our legal right standing before God, we're not only uh, not guilty, but we're actually in perfect righteous standing before him. It's not only justification, but it's also, as we'll say, you know, he'll begin to explain in chapter 4, adoption that flows from our union with Christ. Old Testament Israel... Uh, perhaps had some understanding of being sons of God. In Exodus 4.22, uh, the Lord tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. So they might have had an idea that God was the father of the whole nation. Others might be reading of the Psalms and have an understanding that the king of Israel, as in Psalm 2, is a kind of special son of God. Or they might have had the general sense in which the father is, the Lord is the the Father of all creation, the Lord of all the living. But the sense with which Jesus teaches, even in John 5, as he speaks of the, Father, uh, of the Lord as his own Father, is the very thing in John 5 that causes the conspiracy to his murder to begin among the Sadducees and Pharisees. It's the teaching that um, scandalizes, and I, I think that they... It rightfully scandalizes the Jews in Jesus' day. They, they understand what he's saying at some level. They understand that it changes everything. The implications of being sons of the Heavenly Father are boundless. 
There is nothing more fundamental in life and in death, nothing more determinative, more essential, you might say, your, your relationship with God. A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. Is God some kind of far-off, detached deity that happened to set the clock on the wall and turn things out? He, he made things. He's the Father. Oh, but He's kind of detached. And we live in basically a cold and empty universe at some level. Is He nothing but a judge, implacable, unappeasable, brutal? Or is perhaps in the most post-Christian kind of modern myth, is God more like a doddering grandfather, generally affirming uh, and easy to please and really just wanting what's best for you at some level, but with no standard for justice or truth? Jesus says no. He is like a father that is rightfully both feared and loved. One whom we respect and seek to honor, not because he forces our honor by a list of rules, but because we love him, because we know he loves us. He is not simply a slave master, one who owns us, but rather he is a father who loves us. And the law, therefore, is no abstract list of rules to follow. As we read the Ten Commandments Sunday evening by Sunday evening, as Terry preaches on them in the Sunday evenings, we see that the law is, is not only a, risk, a list of do's and don'ts, but it is a kind of reflection of God's own character. God's holiness put in principle form so that we might do the, the very thing that comes most naturally between sons and fathers. That is to imitate our father's likeness. In the counseling room, uh, as I speak to newly married couples occasionally, um, the wife will find some area of her husband that uh, if she touches or criticizes in anger, causes him rage. It's a sensitive area. And often the sensitive areas I find happen to be, you know, my dad was an honest and hardworking man, and if she questions my integrity and my work ethic, I just can't handle it. There's something sensitive there because we take uh, as an honorable thing that honorable thing reflects my father. Or they look at the toy aisles. It's full of toy lawnmowers and toy grill sets for sons to imitate their fathers. Dwayne Wade, the professional basketball player, was inducted into the Pro Basketball NBA Hall of Fame this last week. And in his induction speech, he had his dad stand up in front of the crowd. And he tearfully began to praise his dad, not for just you know, general affirmation and love, but very pointedly for his pushing, for his training, for his inspiring. He told the story of uh, Dwayne Wade Sr. Uh, being this kid, the son's uh, Dwayne Wade Jr., the professional basketball player, um, <clears throat> AAU coach, him being thrown out of the game, having to leave the building, but still sneaking in the back so that he could coach from the stands. And this is precisely what I think so many young men with deep father hunger at some level lack. There is a distinct lack of direction, purpose, and clarity and this is what the law can become from our Heavenly Father. It gives us our Father's vision for us. The law is a reflection of His holiness, and therefore it is a pleasure and it is a joy, or ought to be for true sons, to emulate their Father. Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage, and blessed is the man with a quiver full. And of course the quiver is what 
you pull arrows out of, saying that children are like arrows, and that children and sons are meant to be given direction. They're meant to be aimed. Proverbs 22, 6, raise up the child in the way he should go, and when he, will, when he grows old, he will not depart from it. That is, there, there is a way a child needs to be given a direction. This whole idea of a Rousseauian kids can figure it out on their own. Let them discover what's true and right for themselves. Couldn't be more antithetical to the way that the Bible speaks about children. You see, the Son of God is given a roadmap, guidance, protection, provision, healthy expectations, clarity, and goals of holiness before their Heavenly Father. And that is not an oppressive weight. That is not an oppressive fear of losing your status, your sonship before God, walking on eggshells before His law. No, there is a strength and a confidence that comes to a son obeying his father. It's what Jesus leans upon. Jesus in Luke 22, on his way to the cross, prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. How does that make sense? Only between the love of a father and a son. See, the strength needed for living the Christian life in times like our own, the clarity that is needed to have uh, the law not be an oppressive weight, but rather a freeing and inspiring direction is known to you only if you are a son and not a slave to the law. A son does not earn his sonship, but a son does love obeying his father. This is the first source of confidence, I would argue, given to us here at the end of chapter 3 and verse 26. Secondly, not only we're meant to draw confidence from our heavenly father, but also our heavenly family. You know, as Paul points out, your adoption in Christ, he's, he's really only begin, beginning to, to pile on the benefits uh, that flow from Christ. As I'm reading The Hobbit to my children for the first time, Bilbo and the dwarves, as they leave uh, Bjorn's house and begin to uh, enter Mirkwood Forest, groan under the weight of their packs. But Thorin, the head dwarf, he reminds them they will need all their packs can hold for the journey before them. Such is the Christian life. All the benefits of Christ you need to have weighing you upon your heart and mind as you follow Christ's way. Not only should we have confidence in our relationship to our Heavenly Father as sons, but also confidence from being part of our Heavenly family. Look at verse 27. It says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And you remember here Paul's original audience and what they were teaching. They had been turned under the Judaizing false teachers that uh, justification was by works and therefore inclusion into the people of God, into the church, was really by keeping the ceremonial Old Testament law. Perhaps a good illustration is even earlier in this book, chapter 2, verse 11, when Peter visits Antioch uh, on the mission field, where Peter arrives as uh, he's visiting from Jerusalem, uh, and he's having great fellowship with the Gentile Christians in this missionary Gentile church, and he preached the evening you know, sermon, no doubt, and they're having dinner together, and then all of a sudden people show up from Jerusalem you know, the hardcore Judaizers types. And he, Peter's behavior starts to change, and he, he puts down the barbecue he's been eating. He can't be having the pork. He's, he, he's really closer to the wall here. And, uh, and by doing so and drawing back and breaking table fellowship, 
he's creating a, a kind of first class and second class kind of citizens within the kingdom of God. He's making distinctions that they weren't there before. There was, there was table fellowship with Jews and Gentiles in the church, but with Peter drawing back. With the Galatian churches having this teaching coming, there's a, 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 a stratification that's happening. They had received their baptism. Paul says, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized, as many of you as received the sign of inclusion into the church, you have put on Christ. That is, when the waters of baptism physically covered you, spiritually you were clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So that all those in the church spiritually were wearing the same thing. They all had the same family tartan. We have all put on Christ. That is, there is a, a basic unity in the midst of our diversity. When you get down to the most important thing about you and about us as a church, the spiritual reality, when we come together, it ought not to look like a military ball where we're all wearing our class and rank and awards on our chest and we're sitting in the banquet hall based upon our, our honor, with our dignity within the organization. No, no, the Puritans, when they were renting out pews to the highest bidder or, or arranging the seating in the church based upon the, the honor of the family within the town or doing something that strikes against the essential nature of being a part of the family of God. We're all clothed in Christ. We were all dead to sin. We're all united in Christ. We all have the same uniform on. Some people didn't get their uniform from Louis Vuitton. Some people didn't get their uniform from Walmart. No, we're all in the same clothing from Christ. All seated at the family table. All begging from crumbs. All by grace through faith. He explains further in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is what divides us naturally or visibly. What is seen physically, our race, class, gender, is trumped by what is true spiritually. Spiritually, you know, we say physically the room is full of diversity. Spiritually, the, rule, the room is full of unity, wearing the same thing, a part of the same family, saved by the same brother, unto the same father, for you are all one in Christ. Divisions of churches based upon class, ethnicity, gender lines ought not be. In the history of our own church, where apparently slaves were made to sit in the balcony, it's an abominable practice. It's anti-gospel. The clear application of verse 28 among the people of God is there ought to be no partiality. James 2 and verse 1, James explains it the best. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Verse 8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. transgressors. The spiritual unity we have in Christ means practical impartiality among the people of God. Now often this passage in this verse, verse 28, is, is trotted out in a way that points to the spiritual unity in Christ as a pretext for not unity, but something closer perhaps to uniformity. Clearly Paul points to the reality of unity between Jews and Gentiles without erasing uh, the distinction. He still will call Jews to live in an understanding way with Gentiles and Gentiles not to offend their Jewish brothers by eating meat offered to idols. He calls for the unity of slaves and masters without calling for directly the abolition of slavery. He tells Philemon, the slave master, to receive Onesimus, the slave, as a brother, but does not instruct him to free him. He calls for unity among men and women, neither male nor female. And it, of course, upholds the complementary structure of men and women in the home and in the church, where men are given the responsibility of leadership, Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2. This is one of the most often texts that are are brought out here for women ministers. And one of my favorite commentators, Reverend Johnson, says, the apostles' words, he says, the apostles' words no more mean that women ought to preach than that men should have babies. And as our own dear Amy Martin used to say, why do women need to preach in the church on Sunday? Ain't six days a week enough. So Paul calls for unity in the midst of diversity. And even further, we might say a kind of hierarchy on an egalitarian foundation. Within the church, there is real authority given to the elders and the deacons. Paul explains the first Timothy and Titus. And yet this is an authority that's placed upon a family. It is not a boundless authority. It is tempered by the same ontological, spiritual, moral, familial standing before God, a true equality before God. There's no lording it over one another because we all stand connected in the body of Christ. One body, many members, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12. And there is, a, of course, a certain kind of health and strength that comes from being a part of a healthy body or a healthy family. A kind of strength and confidence and peace that comes from uh, your heavenly family and where you stand in it. You know, I'm, I'm struck year after year, in some ways as I get older, at the silliness, perhaps at some level, of, of college football teams who, you know, like, like Penn State, for instance, you know, I'm excited for a good season coming up, who, uh, you know, in their videos are always, we're going to break it down on three, family on three, one, two, three, family. Why? Well, family of all things. Because every football coach knows the best motivating factor you can have is not the love of football. Practicing football isn't very fun at all, actually. It's rather miserable. What they all say is you play for your brother. I mean, even even Philip Rivers, the former NFL quarterback, was speaking to his college football team in North Carolina State this last week and saying, he had a long speech. What brought him to tears, though, at the end was why he played, why he loved it. He loved being out there with his brothers, with his family. And if it's true in college football in this kind of silly way, it's even more true in life. It's even more true in the church. There is something deeply strengthening, motivating, comforting, peace-giving to draw upon the family of God 
in our pursuit of Christ. We're meant to draw strength and confidence from our heavenly Father, our heavenly family, and briefly also, in this last verse of chapter 3, our heavenly forebearers. Our heavenly forebearers. Look at verse 29 with me. It says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So that we might think, there's not only a source of strength that's vertical from God, or horizontal from without, from the family of God, but also from behind, from the past, from the story of Abraham. That is, as Paul explains, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. That means that you are the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. The, the, the promise of as many stars in the sky, as many sand on the seashore, is a promise that mentions and has you in the mind of God and you in the words that are given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. Not only um, fulfillments of this promise, but actually heirs and inheritors of the promise. Further, I think it, that, that means that the land that's promised to Abraham. Abraham has promised both seed and land. And what is the, the spiritual symbolism of the land, of the place of dwelling with God, the land flowing with milk and honey spiritually? Of course, that's heaven. The heirs according to promise, the fulfillment of the Bible, puts us in a place where we're no longer a, a rootless people. We, we, we are Americans. Just ask any European who is visiting, the tourist in Savannah, and uh, how, how many times they hear, well, oh, I'm Scottish too, or, you know, I, I'm German, turns out. Never been there. Uh, no, I, we, we've been here six generations, but I'm German too. Well, we, uh, we, uh, there's Ancestry.com. There's 23andMe. There's, a, there's a, a big business in America, and people finding their roots, some kind of historical connectedness to give them some place they've come from. So they might know who they are, where they are, and where they're going. It's in the heart of every man, woman, and child. They, they want to have a backstory, a history, an identity that's more stable than what I might feel like today. See, Paul is showing us those in Christ. He shows us about as deep an ancestry as we could ever ask for. He, he, he shows us our place in the book and this book is your family history if you put yourself in Christ. This book that's about Christ is about us as well. And there is great strength there. One can often feel out of place, insecure, perhaps when you show up to a birthday party, and uh, perhaps you're the only non-family member at the birthday party. Or perhaps you've been a white guy that showed up to a black church, or you've been a black guy that showed up to a white church, and you feel a little out of place. Or perhaps you, you know what it feels like to feel outclassed. Uh, when doing college ministry in the University of Pennsylvania's campus, that Ivy League school in Philadelphia, I always felt a, a little insecure in interacting with these, you know, uh, impressive students there at Penn. And I was struck when reading Andrew Roberts' biography of Winston Churchill, how, how of course, Churchill never seemed to suffer from the insecurity of being outclassed. <laughs> he certainly has a complicated relationship with his father, uh, this seems to have motivated him, motivated him to great achievement. But the strength, resolve, and vision, which he seemed to draw on all his life, the confidence he had, uh, no matter the people he was around, I always found striking. If ever, anyone ever lived with great confidence, undaunted, no matter the circumstance, it might be Churchill. 
how much more for you to have a kind of Churchillian confidence and the heritage of who you are and the family line that you come from to know we ought not ever to be outclassed. We have every reason to have confidence, peace, and joy, eternal and even infinite stores of strength in the midst of the storms of life. First and foremost, from our Heavenly Father. Secondly, from our Heavenly Family. And thirdly, from our Heavenly Forebearers giving you deep meaning, background, history, and future. Come whatever storm that may, you have resources on which to draw on here at the end of Galatians chapter 3. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we would be strong in the faith, that we would know where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going, and our deep and abiding unity in Christ spiritually, And of course, our standing is not slaves, but sons. Sons loved by the Father. Sons adopted into the family. Sons who cannot lose their salvation by bad performance, but who have assurance. It's not based upon who we are, but based upon who Christ is and the work He's accomplished. Give us faith, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.